This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me in person, this is another part of the new normal iteration, is Eric Mills, the Naval History Editor-in-Chief. Eric, it is fantastic to see you in real life. Likewise, Ward, nice to see you in three dimensions. I'm in all three dimensions. It's a whole different right? experience, I have to say. It, it, it is, isn't it? Yes, My indeed. third dimension is my best. Uh-huh. Yeah. I've I heard hear, my fifth dimension is the best. But, You're 50. You know, it depends up, up on who away, you ask. Right? Yes. The fifth dimension, remember? That's right. Okay. Um, so what's happening in the world of naval history? Well, like I said uh, previously, we just cleared the boards on the um, upcoming July-August issue, and man, it's going to be a good one. We're real excited about that. Uh, just to give you a little taste of it, we've got some great um, Small Wars Marine Corps material in there, including a cover story by our author of the year, Mark Fulce. Uh There's some nice uh, Coast Guard birthday uh, material in there as well, some great World War II, something for everybody. So be watching for that one, folks. And meanwhile, the uh, June issue is getting uh, lots of great response, which is what we're here for today. Uh, one of the um, articles that has generated all sorts of reader interest in the current issue of the magazine. So let's get right to our guest. So with us today is Douglas Gilbert to talk about 27 October 1962, the peak of the Cuban Missile Crisis. It could be called the most dangerous day in human history. But thanks to a submariner, Armageddon likely was averted. And with us today to talk about this amazing story is Douglas Gilbert, who is a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. He served on board um, the patrol gunboat USS Douglas and the ballistic missile submarine Will Rogers. Mr. Gilbert's a pioneer in modern submarine detection, tracking, and localization, and he holds four patents. And he's published technical papers in multiple professional journals, and he's lectured in the United States and Europe. But he's here today to talk to us about an amazing individual who could easily be called an unsung hero of the perpetuation of human civilization at the height of the Cold War. Doug, welcome. Thank you. It's it's wonderful to be here to share this story of a spectacular near miss that's been hiding in plain sight. That's just it. Current events become history, right? But it's only after there's that sort of uh, patina of age accrues to them, and also, more importantly, files get declassified, uh, which is what happened, of course, after the fall of the Soviet Union. And so much of this um, material couldn't be told. The story of the Cold War really couldn't be told until uh, now. And uh, your compelling story you're going to talk about today is a great example of that. Uh, everybody's heard of the Cuban Missile Crisis, but there was a really, really close call there for civilization on that fateful day. And um, I'll let you tell the story because it's an amazing one. Well, in, uh, in 1962, they almost exploded the world thinking they were doing the right thing. Uh, one theme of any discussion of the Cuban Missile Crisis 
is the cavalcade of bad decisions based on misunderstandings and miscalculations leading to nearly disastrous consequences. And I have to congratulate you all on your uh, Bay of Pigs uh, podcast with Norman Friedman, uh, where he said, no Bay of Pigs, no Cuban Missile Crisis. So it was uh, prescient with regard to this particular story. This story unfolds chronologically and builds on itself with a, with a series of causal events. Operation Anadir, which was the Russian operation to place the missiles in Cuba, was conceived uh, in April of 1962. And as the story goes, Nikita Khrushchev was vacationing in his dacha on uh, the Black Sea with his defense minister, who reminded him that the U.S. had nuclear missiles pointed at him just across the water from Turkey. Now, Khrushchev, who was known for pounding the podium with his shoe, was not a subtle individual. And he uh, decided he had to do something about that. The decision was then to place 60 offensive nuclear missiles with one megaton or with megaton warheads in easy reach of the United States and to prepare to repel an American invasion of Cuba with 40,000 combat troops with 100 tactical nuclear weapons. And this entire event unfolded from May 1962 through the last Saturday of October 1962 when the excitement finally began to subside. Uh, the naval contingent of this, which we are discussing, was a plan called Kama, K-A-M-A, and Admiral Foken, uh, Vice Admiral Foken, was the um, was the writer. He 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 submitted it in late May to Khrushchev, and approved it on September 18th. It was written, single copy, handwritten, labeled top secret, special importance, single written copy for Nikita Khrushchev eyes only. And we can read this online now at the uh, National Security Archives from George Washington University. It's quite spectacular. So what, what did it say in summary? In summary, it said that the 69th Torpedo Brigade from uh, Cola Bay in Poliarni, uh, four submarines would, uh, would be outfitted with nuclear torpedoes, one nuclear torpedo torpedo per boat, and sent on a mission to Mariel Bay, Cuba, to um, establish a permanent naval base as part of the deployment. See, Khrushchev's plan, Operation Anadir, was basically based on Eisenhower's uh, plan to put Jupiter missiles in Italy and in um, Turkey. What he did was he snuck the missiles in while no one was watching, and once it was a fait accompli, after the announcement, it was too late to try to get them removed. So that was Khrushchev's idea, would be to put these missiles and the troops and um, the tactical warheads into Cuba, and once they were all there, he could announce it, and it would be too late. He thought Kennedy was too weak to respond, and he almost pulled it off. The plan was approved on September 18th, and 13 days later they sailed. Now, if you can imagine, and this is sort of the beginning of the many surprises in this story, 
These four submarines, with captain and crew, were outfitted with Arctic suits, charts of all the oceans, one nuclear torpedo, and also a band of special forces from uh, the Russian Osnaz group, which had never been deployed on submarines either. They had no idea where they were going, only that they were going there permanently. And they sailed with sealed orders in their safe. So that was the beginning of the story as they headed into um, the Norwegian Sea. And almost immediately they began being chased by uh, ASW forces. Another podcast that I really enjoyed, by the way, was your SOSIS podcast. And uh, in 1962... SOSIS had already been deployed and operational in the Norwegian Sea. And so the Norwegians and the Americans were collaborating to chase down the Russians. And the Russians were very clever, hiding among fishing fleets and, you know, uh, running full speed ahead during the short daylight hours of October while uh, spending most of their night hours underwater, I'm sorry, uh, on the surface, uh, recharging their batteries, refreshing their oxygen, and communicating with the world. So they were able to uh, to get through all of the choke points. You know, the SOSIS, as, as you stated so clearly in your uh, podcast, the SOSIS is uh, in the deepest, shallow spots of the ocean where there are choke points that vessels would be having to pass through and be more easily detected. So off they went. Now, after a few days, they reached the North Atlantic, and life changed almost immediately. The uh, fair weather that they had been experiencing turned into 20 to 30-foot seas. The North Atlantic is, is known for its uh, extreme heavy weather. They also opened their orders and found out that they were heading to Cuba, which was a surprise because Cuba was in nobody's radar on at, at that period of time, at least in the um, squadron, in the, in the uh, torpedo brigade. And they also discovered that in the Osnaz riders, there were multiple English-speaking men, which turned out to be quite fortuitous because as they reached the North Atlantic, they could begin to pick up the Canadian broadcast to the fishing fleet and start tuning in to the news of the world, which in the Soviet Union they weren't even really allowed to listen to, but Osnaz had the special permission. They were there as spies, and so they had the permissions to monitor situational awareness, which they began to do immediately. So while they were enduring the seaborne beatings of the North Atlantic, which included bruises and broken bones that were documented, they were, it was relatively easy to stay undetected because they just couldn't be seen even on the surface in the daytime in 20 to 30 foot seas. It would be very difficult for, a, uh, number one, for an aircraft to fly low enough to see them and number two, to, to make them out from any of the other uh, activity in motion in the sea. An interesting side story here was that the B-36, there were four submarines, the B-4, the B-36, the B-130, and the B-59. The B-36 actually had to uh, conduct an emergency appendectomy of one of the, on one of the sonarmen in the heavy weather. So they fell behind because they had charged their batteries. They went as deep as they possibly could. They basically went to test depth and laid them out on the wardroom table. 
and uh, removed his appendix. How did how did that go? Do we know? It went really well. He survived after this whole thing was over with. Only one award was given, and it was given to the sonarman with the bad appendix. <laughs> <laughs> How come that always so, happens on submarines? The emergency appendectomy is always a submarine story. It's like, of all places, for Murphy's an emergency law. appendectomy. Murphy's right, law. you can't make, you just can't make this up, right? No. The leader of the Osnaz crowd was a man named Lieutenant Vadim Orlov. And Orlov is an interesting character because he was the son of a diplomat, a Soviet diplomat, and he spent his youth growing up in the United States. So not only did he speak the language, but he understood the culture, which, of course, the Soviets in general would not. Uh, it also turns out that when this story broke in Havana, when Fidel Castro held his 40th and 50th uh, in 2002 and 2012, anniversary uh, reunions and invited all of the Americans and all of the Cubans and all of the Soviets. Orlov, who was a young man at the time of the incident, was still able to attend. And we have actual video uh, of him telling the story of the B, what happened in the B-59 control room. Uh, which we are discussing right now. That's so he is uh, he is a compelling character and and a good part of uh, the history because he was not only there to observe it, but he uh, was able to record it. You mentioned how um, the, the English speakers um, that were along um, were picking up the radio signals. So you've got this kind of classic ironic moment where these crews approaching the Caribbean and Soviet submarines are hearing President John F. Kennedy deliver his now-famous Oval Office radio and TV address to the nation about the Soviet military presence in Cuba. And the very um, threat that he's describing, the people who embody that threat are listening to his radio message. So I think he was reaching a larger audience than he realized with that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, There was so much that Kennedy did not know about what was really happening uh, underwater. Uh, the North Atlantic eventually came to a close as they approached the Bermuda Triangle in the Sargasso Sea, and uh, the weather stabilized just for a day or two, and they tuned in to the radio to find out, here comes Hurricane Ella. So Hurricane Ella is barreling up the North American coast, scattering the U.S. fleet, and they endured several days of even heavier weather, 110-mile-an-hour winds that damaged three of the four vessels. And it was only after Hurricane Ella, when they had three of the four vessels rode the hurricane out as deeply as possible and let the hurricane blow over them, the fourth vessel, the B-4, which was carrying the, uh, the commander, um, Agafonov, stayed on the surface, and they took the most damage. Anyway, when that hurricane passed, it was October 19th, and they realized that suddenly they were facing some horrible conditions. Uh, The entire world changed overnight on those subs after that hurricane passed. First of all, they received, uh, they, they, they listened to Kennedy on the 22nd give 
his announcement of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which gave them situational awareness they hadn't had. They received orders from Moscow to proceed to small individual combat sectors where they were told to stay in constant communication, which meant they were either on the surface or at periscope depths. The water temperatures in this subtropical climate were over 80 degrees, and, and the temperatures in these submarines shot up to 113 degrees forward and 148 degrees in the uh, engineering spaces. Refrigerators failed, all the food spoiled. The desalination plants could only produce one cup of water per man per day. That's a lot of perspiration on one cup of water a day. That is. And they were facing the largest ASW force ever assembled. Imagine five carrier groups plus Florida air support. And Moscow set them up as sitting ducks because they just didn't understand submarine operations. So it was just a matter of time before life, which was already bad, got worse. What we used to call a worst-on-worst situation. It's an easy thing to, um, for your judgment to lose its objectivity when you're under such duress, one would imagine. Um, if you're the skipper of one of these subs and uh, it's 115 degrees and you're a cold-weather cold crew, not used to this, and you're living on a cup of water a day and there's suffering throughout, and there's a sense that the whole world is going mad above the surface there, it's easy to see how one's judgment could be impaired. Absolutely. And, and the result of all of that, by the way, according to Orlov, is that the sailors were dropping like flies. flies. People were literally passing out. Um, one of the problems on the B-130, which I did not mention in the article, was that they had three damaged diesel engines, three out of three. So they were on the surface trying to cannibalize two to make the third one work. Uh, when they were discovered on the 27th. And Shumkov, the captain, decided that he should ready his nuclear torpedo. Uh, now, these nuclear torpedoes came with a special weapons officer who, who was the only one allowed to touch it. So he gave the order to his special weapons officer to ready that torpedo, and the man passed out. So that was the end of that torpedo. Phew. <laughs> so you're right it's very difficult to maintain your sense of reason when when you're living in those conditions at any rate um the b-59 was the one ship that wasn't damaged but they came under uh massive attack from uh task force alpha which was headed by the uss randolph and they were under attack for uh several days and ultimately they were forced to submerge for 18 hours straight. They were so perfectly located by the carrier group that when they were dropping some of the um, practice depth bombs, they actually dropped them on the sail and damaged their antenna equipment. Now, the U.S., if you can imagine, um, was quite excited to be chasing real nuclear or real Soviet submarines. They were not nuclear. They were all diesel boats. And it was the first time after all these years of practice that, that they could do that. So they had an enormous amount of enthusiasm, and their plan was to force the subs to the surface, which they did three out of four. Uh, however, what it did was it forced the submarines to go underwater, where they eventually chewed through their batteries, they depleted their oxygen supply, 
the temperatures couldn't be relieved, so the temperatures kept rising. So they were just literally dying in every possible dimension and forced to make a decision. And it was at this time that Captain Savitsky, who I think has gotten a little bit of a bad rap in the early history here, uh, made the announcement that uh, we'll blast our way out of this and we won't uh, embarrass our Navy. So this is and Captain Savitsky of B-59. And that's we are now up to 27 October 1962, correct? That's correct. 27th of October in the evening. Black Saturday, as it came to be known. Black Saturday. And ironically, the very same time that Kennedy and Khrushchev were at the denouement of their decision not to engage in nuclear war as a solution to this problem. And they thought they were making all the decisions. Yeah. And so enter our hero, who was a rider. He was the chief of staff under Agafonov. And he, um, it turns out, had some experience with nuclear disasters. If I may call him our hero, it turns out that our hero had first-hand experience with nuclear disasters 15 months prior to the Cuban Missile Crisis on the 4th of July, 1961. He quelled a potential mutiny with five pistols aboard the K-19, which was the first Soviet nuclear ballistic submarine. He actually had the con when a reactor coolant pipe burst and a fire broke out in the overheated reactor compartment. The dual reactors threatened to melt through the hull or explode the nuclear weapons payload. They were able to avert a Chernobyl disaster from a runaway reactor by jury-rigging fresh water into the primary coolant system. The shipyard had certified the K-19 for sea duty with a microfracture in the main coolant pipe, and the backup coolant system installation had been scratched to maintain the launch schedule. Captain Zetayev sacrificed his engineering crew, and this gets graphic, by sending them into the nuclear reactor, facing intense heat in radi and radiation in rubber suits and OBAs, oxygen breathing apparatuses, to implement emergency repairs. When the men emerged, irradiated and foaming from their mouths, struggling to speak or see with swollen tongues and eyes, the captain ordered the ship's small arm inventory to be thrown into the sea, except for five pistols. Radiation levels bloomed throughout the ship, and the crew panicked, edging toward a mutiny aimed at beaching the sub on a nearby island and abandoning the ship. Arkhipov, our hero, then the XO of, of the K-19, stood firm with a contingent of loyal officers and five pistols, defended the captain, saved the sailors from themselves, and maintained order and discipline until the entire crew could be evacuated onto a passing submarine. Both Arkhipov and Zetayev eventually died within a month of each other in 1998 from radiation-induced cancers but the surviving crew members were nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize in 2006. Canine and that might have had something to do with a 2002 movie called K-19 The Widowmaker, starring Harrison Ford as Zatayev and Liam Neeson as Arkhipov. 
That is amazing. Now, when you tell that story and people hear K-19, that probably rings a, a bell that they uh, remember this movie. And Arkhipov, the, the hero of that story, is even a bigger hero in the article we're discussing today where um, he intervenes in a way that arguably stops a nuclear Armageddon. Maybe Tell us about that. I can't help but think that it may have been an act of providence that this man who had survived this nuclear disaster was there at the moment when another nuclear disaster was about to uh, unfold. And according to Orlov, he and Zavitsky had an animated conversation. And Orlov insists that it was Arkhipov who talked Zavitsky out of basically eliminating Task Force Elsa by Alpha by taking out the carrier. Now, if you've had any interaction with sea captains, which I have had plenty, you know that they don't change their mind on a whim. And you know that it's not easy to talk them out of something unless they really don't want to do it. Um, I have to say that there is some... Uh, unfortunately erroneous information out there uh, primarily I think it came from Wikipedia where some someone decided that there was some voting going on and and that the captain didn't have full control well that's not true the captain it was the captain's decision but Arkhipov suggested to him somewhat forcefully as I understand it that he could test the will of the Americans uh, Savitsky the captain believed the Americans were trying to sink him and Arkhipov said, if you release one ping, which is the international indicator that a submarine is about to surface, then you can test. I mean, they're already attacking you. If they continue their attack, you know what their intention is. If they stop their attack, you know what their intention is. The captain agreed. They released one ping. And instantaneously, all the destroyers came to full stop. One ping versus launching a nuclear war. That's uh, quite a this or that decision. And bear in mind, um, as you point out in here, that this is in a climate where President Kenny has already declared that any nuclear uh, missile launch will be, will, will, quote, be requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. So that one thing right there, that decision had gone differently. It would have set the whole chain in motion. Uh, just the same nightmare scenario of uh, that haunted everybody in the early 60s and led to things like Failsafe and Dr. Strangelove and popular culture, that fear that it's just going to take one guy on that level, decision level, and up it escalates until it's all full-blown. That's the closest that I can think of we ever came, at least that I've read of. Well, it's- and the, the, the fact that you point out, Doug, that Khrushchev and Kennedy thought that they were de-escalating and then there was this resonance happening completely out of their control should concern your average American listening to this podcast about how this works, because this is certainly analogous in this era of network centrism and everything else we talk about in terms of information flow in the heat of battle. We are not immune from this sort of phenomenon, uh, you know, at the pointy end of the spear now. So if you put all your faith in some command structure that that starts and ends with the commander in chief, uh, you're probably uh, going to be uh, sorry for having done that. My my conclusion precisely. It, it is it is difficult to imagine 
um, what would have happened because they because no one knew that these torpedoes with nuclear tips even existed. A nuclear explosion taken out a carrier would have been a total mystery. How did this happen? And you can imagine the military minds going to the worst places. Right. At that moment you know, in history, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and oh, by the way, uh, days prior to this, Kennedy's Joint Chiefs of Staff were recommending a full invasion of Cuba. Again, not realizing that they would be met with 46,000 troops with 100 nuclear, 100 tactical warheads. Actually, the number was 98, but then you add the four submarines, it's 102, so I kind of rounded to 100. But you get the idea. That would have been such a disaster. Yes, indeed. The mind boggles. What someone wants, the, the infinite worlds of maybe, the what ifs, what ifs of history. This is a particularly frightening one, and one that also makes you feel such a great sense of relief. And as you mentioned, perhaps there's some lingering idea of a providence that steered it, the decision to the right way and not the disastrous way. So what happened to... Um, Vasily Vasily Arkhipov in the historical record. He, he he was not even no one was aware of him until after the Soviet declassification of files. But even then, uh, he never like went around talking about this, did he? No, he actually rose to the level of vice admiral and taught at the Soviet Naval Academy. So he remained in the Navy all of his life. He was. Um, a good soldier, a good sailor, and when people tried to engage him, specifically his uh, his wife and his family, um, he refused to talk about it because he was not allowed. It, because it was classified, he was not allowed to talk about it. So he took the secrets to his grave, and it was only after the declassification now by the way there is so there the the the, the research uh was very satisfying because it's just rich with documentation uh agafonov the the brigade commander wrote an after action report dubivko from the b36 wrote his memoirs uh Keurig, uh from the b4 wrote an article in the journal of strategic studies and, of course, Orlov told his story on film in Havana. So, and when I got done researching this, I actually had 25 pages of bibliography. That's, <laughs> that's how much information there actually is about this. It is a fascinating story from stem to stern. Now, there, there is a book you've done about this as well. We should mention that. Um, tell us about that. Well, um, I wanted to tell the story. I, it, it is my personal opinion that uh, Arkhipov is a hero of both the Soviet Union and the United States, that his story is our story because we wouldn't most likely be here if it wasn't for him. And if I had something to say about it, there would be some sort of a plaque or a statue at the Naval Academy to recognize his contribution to humanity so i felt like i wanted to write a, a something which turned into a book it started out as an article but it kept growing because the story was so compelling so i not I, I i novelized the entire story by adding dialogue and to do that as as i read each little snippet as, as you know history sort of comes out in 
this person said this, this person saw this, this person wrote this. And if you compile the entire set of snippets, you suddenly get a much broader tapestry of what really went on. And because of my surface experience, because of my submarine experience, because of my underwater uh, sonar uh, experience and research and appreciation, I could literally see and feel the whole thing. And I wanted the reader to experience the submarine ride of their lives because most people are terrified of submarines and I wanted to verify that they were right about that. And uh, I also wanted them to really understand how difficult a decision this would have been under the conditions that these men had suffered uh, for so long. And so I wrote the book. Uh, it's called The Last Saturday of October and it's, uh, it's available on Amazon. Yes. So on page 39 of the article, there's a couple of things that jump out at me. So the center image has this uh, mass of valves that is kind of mind boggling. Uh, it looks like some sort of a uh, pop art project. Uh, so that I call it a bell wheel alley. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then there's a cool quote, which as we talk about fictionalized history, this this would just be a great dialogue in, in the movie version that where Captain Savitsky, he's losing his composure and the asphyxiating madness. He says, the war has already started up there and we are down here doing somersaults. I love that line. And then, again, this shows the desperation and how the calculus that was going on in their minds made nuclear Armageddon an option, right, a viable option. He says, we're going to blast them now. We'll die, but we will sink them all. We won't disgrace our Navy or shame the fleet. You know, so if that's the matrix, then, then nuclear Armageddon is a, is a viable option. That, again, that should cause pause for all of us in terms of how does it go downrange. Yeah, it was lucky. And, and that, that piece of dialogue was a quote from Orlov. That, I did not make that up. That was literally a quote from Orlov's testimony. Right, right. And the world was lucky there was an Arkhipov there to talk Savitsky down off the ledge at that moment, that crucial moment. Yes, I think that's an understatement. Yeah, I mean, that's what it comes down to. So we've been talking to Douglas Gilbert. The article in the current issue of Naval History magazine is called Black Saturday Declassified. So, Doug, thanks for this effort and thanks for joining us on the podcast today. You're very welcome. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much, Doug. Great to talk with you. Nice to be with you. That'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll talk to you again soon.